The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, church. <laughs> I said I hit it, that's all. Um, so today's scripture reading is found in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Um, if you're following along on the Bibles underneath the chairs, it's going to be found on page 920, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. And while you're flipping there, I just want to let you know, if you don't already know, if you're in need of a Bible, let this be our gift to you. Um, yeah, just wanted to say that. All right. So starting in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined every one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And when they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So I'm, I've captioned this morning's um, teaching. It's, it's called Church Business is Family Business. See, again, church business is family business. Um, and I broke it into three sections. C's, the letter C was cheap this week, so I used C's. Three sections. The first section is the circumcised criticized Cephas. Now, Cephas is the Greek name for Peter, by the way. So we've got that section where, and we didn't read it this morning, but we covered the events of it last week. And some people got upset with Paul saying, how could you eat in this guy's house? And so he recounts that vision, and we'll go over that this morning, but we covered it primarily last week. So the first section is uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, the circumcised, criticized Cephas. The second section is um, converts called Christians, and that's what we heard about in Antioch. They were the place, first place they got called Christians, so the converts are called Christians. That's verses 19 through 27. And the last, is, uh, last section is church charity committed. And that's verses 28 through 30. Uh, so that's where we're going. Circumcised, criticized Cephas, the converts called Christians, and the church charity committed. So I want to, 
I don't know if I've used this before. I, I think I've used it somewhere, but um, see if you can go with me on this. I want to give you the top 10 reasons the church business is like running a mob business, like organized crime mob business. So top 10 reasons church business is like mob business. Number one, excuse me, number 10, you're supposed to go the other way around. Number 10, every member should follow orders given to him or her. Okay, that's fair. So if you're given orders in the mob, you better follow them. And in the church, you know, we're responding to God, so you got to follow the orders. Uh, number nine, our word is our bond. You know, as a brother in Christ, when I say something, I'm going to do it. And, and when you tell the Don you're going to do it, you're going to do it. Number eight, family is real important. I'm going to give you a quote here. Friends are not as important as family. Do not confuse the loyalty of a friendship with the bond of blood. So in Christ, the family's real important too. Number seven, it can get messy, real messy. Just watch The Godfather, you'll know that. But for us, in the body of Christ, we're messy people. So it does get messy. Um, number six, it is a 24-7 business. There are no holidays in the mob, and there are no holidays in church. So if there's a calling, a ministry, a commitment, something to do, we do it. You step forward to do it. Number five, even if not disclosed, everyone should know who you work for. I grew up about an hour outside of New York City. There were people literally murdered in this place called the, the Sea Mist Resort. Not the Sea, um, the, I'm trying to think of it. It's not, sea Mist is in Myrtle Beach. There was another one. Um, and remember where, you know, I'd been in the place. Like somebody walked in and put three bullets into somebody and walked out. And nobody's ever prosecuted. And we know the only people that really hung out there were mob people. But, you know, nobody says you work for the Don, yet everybody knows it. And is that true with us as believers in Christ? Does everybody know who we work for? So, uh, food is really important. I don't know about your C group, but it isn't ours. Um, so food is really important. The quote, leave the gun, take the cannoli. Yeah, so I mean, when you're taking food over weapons, you know food's important. And I believe that's true about us here in Doxa. And it may be a sin, I don't know, but you can bear with us on that. Uh, pray for us if it's a sin. All right, everyone should take their job very seriously, dead seriously. All right, again, you got a job to do it. Uh, we're in it for life. The only way you leave is feet first in the mob, and that's true in the church. We are here for the long haul. We're in it for life. And number one, a little drum roll, it can, it can only be run by members of the family. All right, that's the only way the church works, and it's the only way the mob works, and that's the end of the conversation. So my question in opening this morning is, based upon your participation in the church, what type of mobster would you make? Just a question. You know, would you, would you meet those criteria well, mediocre, kind of sloppy? I don't know, but based upon your participation in the church, what type of mobster would you make? So the first section, the circumcised criticize Cephas. And again, we're talking about Peter. We uh, continue to see the preaching of the gospel expanding outward in Acts. And that's really the story of Acts, is, is that, that it, it's this expansion of this gospel message throughout the world, through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And we're witnessing that again uh, this morning take place. So we open up Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. Now we know this was on Twitter, right? Uh, it was Stone Age Twitter, but it was, how do these guys get the message that quick? I mean, the, the news traveled because it beat Peter back to Jerusalem, by the way, right? 
So, so the Gentiles are receiving the word of God. Wouldn't they see this as good, right? No. No, this is bad news. This, this is something negative, and, and this is why. We remember, even last week we were talking about this, how the Jews hated Gentiles, generally speaking. They would have considered them dogs. Um, they, they, it was clearly the greatest bias that the Jews had, and it was towards Gentiles, although there might have been an issue with the Sumerians because the Sumerians were like part Jew and I think some of the Jews probably hated the Sumerians more than the Gentiles because the Sumerians took their religion and then perverted it and twisted it so it's one thing to be an offense to my religion but it's a second thing to take my religion and adulterate it to some foreign or um, inaccurate depiction of the God I serve that's probably more offensive than just being a dog by the way nonetheless when they heard these guys were receiving the gospel, they're not happy with it. And that's pretty scary to think that there are people that when you hear receive the gospel, you're like, oh, they shouldn't get the gospel. I'd like them to burn in hell. And we're going to get to that in a minute, by the way, because I, I suspect some of us have little biases there. So verse 2, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, you always hear in Scripture, do you ever wonder, like, they come down from Anak or, or Syria or somewhere, and it says they went up to Jerusalem? I'm like, well, no, Jerusalem was on a mountain. Everybody's going up to Jerusalem. I don't care where you're coming from. You're going up to Jerusalem. So little things like that when I read Scripture, I go, what do they mean? I mean, they were going south, right? They're going up? I don't get that. So, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them? And this is amazing when you think about this, that, that they're, that's their gripe. This is the best complaint they can muster this day on a Sunday in the church. Must have been bored or something. So what's going on with the circumcision party? So let's explain who these people are. These were Jews who were holding to the fact that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah, yet they believed that they were still under the Mosaic law, meaning all of the prior rituals, ceremonies, and tra traditions, um, all those things you did to be a Jew and to show you were a Jew according to the Old Testament law, you still had to do that. And it would make sense because who gave them the message, you need to do all these things to separate yourself as this people? Well, God gave them the message. So why all of a sudden would we jettison these things we hold so true and dear, which were given to us by God? So now do you understand why they're upset with him eating with Gentiles? And the problem with Gentiles was they were dirty. And under the traditional law, to enter the house of a Gentile was to defile yourself. It was to make you unclean, let alone eat off their table. So he shows up in town, and that's the gripe. Why are you hanging out with the Gentiles? So what, what's really, it's kind of interesting how you see Scripture build to put this in context. But last week we know he was with Cornelius, and, and it was this, this Gentile who was a God-fearing Gentile. God was honoring this guy. But the week before that, he was at Simon the Tanner's house. And it's like God's sending him to all the bad places on the block because a tanner was living in a state of perpetual uncleanness, ritualistically speaking. According to the law, if you touch a dead body, you couldn't go into the temple. You, could, you had to go through these hoops to make yourself clean again. So think about this. What does a tanner deal with seven days a week? Skins coming from what? Dead animals. All right. So the guy was still a Jew. They equated tanners with public urinals, 
Um, they, they actually told them to have their shops on the outside of town in a particular area so the wind would blow the stench out of town. I mean, these guys, a tanner was as low as you could get, but nobody's complaining that Peter went to the tanner's house and came out unclean. Yet now he shows up at the Gentile's house, and you see this sequential building of, also, who's getting the gospel? God's, you know, it's interesting when you look throughout Scripture, who gets the gospel? You know, the, 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 the adulteress, the tax collector, you know, the, these, these people who are always at the end of the social spectrum are receiving the gospel. And no true here as it continues out, and probably primarily so because the people who really think they got it going on don't need a God, let alone this Jesus. I'm doing fine without him. Why do I need you? So the offense you ate with this man in his house. I guess these guys missed Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3, which says, the Gentiles shall come to your light. Maybe they missed the, the commission at the end of Matthew 28, where it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Maybe they missed Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus tells them, you should be a witness unto me in Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Maybe they missed all of that when they start getting sent to the places Jesus said they would be sent to. So... Here's the question for us, the application. What, what is the takeaway? And let, let me say this on a side note. In all fairness, Jews had, Gentiles had shown very little interest in the traditional Old Testament religion. So it makes sense that they would be thinking, yeah, we might have to tell them about Jesus, but they're not going to take the bait anyway. They're not interested in this gospel message. So what's really, yeah, we'll tell them about Jesus, but we'll do it at arm's length and we'll let it be that. But they're not really going to respond, are they? And I would say in, in, in the first hundred years of the church, the massive shock to the Jews was the response by Gentiles to Christ um, because it turned the church completely upside down on its head. That will also be addressed, this, this transition of how much of the Old Testament law is relevant how much of it do we need to keep and how much of it do we need to let go? That'll be addressed in a couple of weeks from now in Acts chapter 15 because this is all coming to a head. This thing is pushing in that direction where the church has to make calls on what do we really take away from the, the temple worship and the sacrificial system and those traditional feasts and, and the general rituals that we hold dear as Jews. So the best defense, what's the best defense? The truth. So Peter comes back and he recounts this story. I was in the city of Joppa praying. And we know this from last week. He says, in a trance, I see this vision and this great sheet descends, let down from heaven to four corners, and it came to me. I observed these animals, beasts of the prey, the reptiles, birds of the air. I heard a voice saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, we know what Peter would have said. Have you lost your mind? No, he doesn't say that in Scripture. It says, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered this mouth. And the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and it was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at the very moment, men arrived at the house, sent, for, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me, go with them. So he's giving him this story, saying, Here, here's just what happened. Um, and these six brothers also accompanied me, which is really interesting because he's got his little band of witnesses to come along with him. So they're like, yeah, this is the way it happened. Well, not the dream. We weren't in the dream, but we saw these people show up and they took us off to Caesarea. So he's got these six brothers from last week that accompanied him. 
And at the man's house, um, we know that Simon tells them that he's seen an angel in the house. And he said, send to Joppa, bring a man named Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you'll be saved. And then Peter says, and I began to speak. The Holy Spirit fell on them. And here's the big language, just on us in the beginning. Uh-oh, that's not good. And it continues on. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water and you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? You're a pin drop. He shuts them down. He gives them the facts, outlines it. And when they heard these things, Scripture says in verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent. So I guess they decided they didn't want to stand in God's way at this point. And they glorified God, saying, to, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So when you think about this, what's our takeaway? And as I was, you know, there's a hundred ways you can teach any passage. But my takeaway on this was really you see this church business being conducted here. You see it here with resolving a dispute. You, you are going to see it in a couple more minutes with logistical manning in the church in Antioch. And then we're going to see it in, in the giving to support brothers in less need. But it all deals with church business. How does the church do their business? So the question for us, what is our takeaway? And I think one of the big things is we should, we should be aware of and look for people who are going to come to criticize what we're doing in the church. And that's what's going on here. And they're going to come and criticize us, and they're clueless to the plan of God. Now, that's not bad. Let me say that again. You're going to say, What's that? How, how's that not bad? The problem is, is we're, what kind of people? Messy people. We don't have the full picture. We don't all have the collective mind of God. So when I see somebody doing something in the church, I go, well, are they doing that right? And unless I was given the specific revelation, I'm clueless. So people are going to complain in the church. They are going to criticize, and they're going to be clueless to the plan of God. Now, here's the big deal for us. What's our duty? First, did Peter say, I'm doing God's business. Buck up, suck it up. Did, did he shut them down? Did he walk away? Did he throw his arms up? Did he start attacking them? And it's interesting because it, Scripture doesn't record who he was responding to except the circumcision party. And I think that's specific, is the point is that God is making is simply we're not attacking somebody. The, the scripture passage isn't about that one particular headache person in the church in the first century. The question's about how do we resolve these things when somebody brings a criticism before us? So for the first thing we do is respond in love and in the truth. Peter didn't fly off the handle. He simply said, hey, let me tell you the story. Let me give you the facts. Um, and if they are not under Christ... I would tell you, expect to be condemned and leave it alone. The principle here is this, very short principle. Christ unifies all who are under him. Christ unifies all who are under him. So if they are not under him, is there going to be any sense of unity in the collective mentality, conscience, and plan of the church? And the answer is absolutely not. They are not going to be on board. But if you give somebody the truth who is truly seeking Christ, that's going to unify them as part of this plan, as part of this uh, mission, endeavor of the body of Christ. But do we have a duty to explain what we're doing and why we're doing it to those people? Absolutely. 
And at that point, I think the same thing happens when somebody comes to us and says, why, why are you doing this? And we explain it. The light comes on. They're not going to, because here's the deal. It's not about my program or Randy's program or Dale's program. Who was I that I could stand in whose way? God's way. It has nothing to do with me. And if I'm off kilter, pointed out, and if it's accurate, I'll step aside. But if it's about God's plan, that's a completely different can of worms. Because if you want to get in God's way, that's your problem, not mine. I'll simply make the plan clear that we're following. And I think that's a duty that we have as believers. So if they're not under him, expect, expect some onslaught there and move on. So let me ask you, uh, or let me make a suggestion, that if you're one of the members of the circumcision party, do we have any members? Give me some hands. If you're a member of the circumcision party, Dale, come on, raise your, just, just an elbow, Dale, just a little elbow for us, somebody. Here's the truth. Every one of us have a little bit of the circumcision party in us. You know, we just like to stir some things. We just get in the middle of it once in a while. And think about it. How many of us don't have those days when we're poking somebody and we have no business poking them? We want our own way. We want our agenda. The humanness of us starts pushing an agenda in the body of Christ. And so if that comes out, if you're a member of the circumcision party, I'd like you to do a couple things with me because I'm a member of the circumcision party. When we are compelled to criticize another brother or sister, consider some things. First, pray that God would reveal the truth to you about this matter. Just pray, God, if I'm off, let me know. Because you might have a valid conviction. You might have a complaint that needs to be vetted. Some of the best things that have happened in Doxa has been when our critics sometimes can become our greatest advocates. Think about that. How many of us improve our game when somebody just pats us on the back? Good job, good job. Well, I get, I get fat and lazy because I'm just thinking I'm doing a great job. But when you say, Jonathan, I don't think you did that real well or this could be tightened up, I'm then having to reappraise the job I'm doing. And if I can improve that, let's do it better, right? So take that as a grain of salt that these critics can become our advocates because nobody else is going to point out our flaws. And if we're living with the flaws and they're getting in the way of God's business, that's a flaw that needs to move. So pray that God would reveal the truth about the matter. Second, complain to them only. Do not complain to the person sitting next to you on the bus. Doxa, have you been to Doxa? Oh my gosh, these guys are nuts. They got problems. They don't know about ministry. The truth, if you begged it and stapled them, they couldn't find it. No, no, no. Go to the people that you think are struggling with the truth in Doxa. Because there's nothing constructive that comes with me re reciting some complaint to somebody who can't do anything about it, except stir the mess and agitate the situation. So go to the person directly that you're feeling um, needs to hear from you. If the focal point of our criticism is the job that someone is doing them, have you ever offered, considered offering them a little help? You know, I used to say, I, I was in another ministry, and I said, if you want to complain about a ministry, that's good, because I wasn't in a particular church at that time. Well, I was in a church, but not in the ministry I was serving in. So I could say this, that, that if you've got a problem with your church, A, are you faithfully tithing? B, are you praying habitually for the leadership and the particular ministers, ministries you're griping about? C, have you volunteered to assist in those ministries? And are you following obediently as you're called to address that matter? And if you've exhausted all of that complaint till the cows come home, I'm cool with it. But most of the people complaining aren't doing any of those things, let alone one or two or three of them. 
So if the focal point of our criticism is some, the job somebody's doing, maybe have you ever thought they're taxed? Maybe they don't have enough support. They don't have enough resources. They don't have enough backing. And maybe they might need some help. Um, that's often the problem. So consider if you're cr criticizing somebody's conduct or job, support them with prayer and offer physical help. And if the focal point of our criticism is their behavior, ask what's motivating it. Why are you doing this? Okay? But whatever you do, don't go online with any of this. this is, I've seen stuff fighting in churches online and in social media. There's nothing productive that's coming out of that stuff as a general statement. Nothing. It's destructive, and it's a rotten witness. Do you know what the worst thing in the church to see is for a godless person to look in the church and see Christians fighting over stuff? That's a horrible witness. So you, now you know how to help. This is how we help build up the body versus tearing it down. I'm going I'm to tell you something. I got a text this week. I want to read this. The person's not here, so I'm not going to tell you who sent me the text. Um, Randy Dale and myself, I believe, re received the text out of the blue. Hey, guys, uh, this was Friday morning. Just wanted to let you know that I prayed for each of you this morning. I prayed that God would protect you from the traps of the enemy, that you would be able to live victoriously, knowing that his grace is sufficient for what you will encounter. I prayed for each of you that you would be able to accomplish what needs to be done in your jobs so that you could in turn accomplish what he has planned for you in your ministry work. I pray that he would give each of you strength, patience, and a kind heart that is required to appropriately nourish the relationships God has blessed you with in your spouses and children. Be strong and encouraged in your faith today. He is sufficient. Emmanuel, exclamation point. Have a great day. Now, that's a long text. And I think about, you know, when somebody stands alongside of you and sends you something like that, my, whatever load is on my back just got lighter. And, and to serve in a ministry when these kind of people have you back versus somebody who's biting you about the job you're doing is an absolutely different world in which we live. And I've lived in both worlds, by the way. I've also been the backbiter again. Church, you remember the circumcision part? I've, I've been the thorn. And it grieves me when I look back on my conduct to think that, man, you're dead weight in the body. That's a train wreck. I don't want to be that. And maybe sometimes it's when you realize who you are in the body and it grieves you that you do change. And that's the good news. So, ultimately, the issues that concern these practices will get addressed. We'll, we'll, we're, we're going to see that. So let me ask you, in closing this section, let me think about the mob now. We have to go back to the mob, right? From an outsider's perspective, how unified does the respective mob organizations appear in their ideology and practice? Have you ever read in the New York Times that somebody was criticizing John Gotti for the manner in which he was conducting his racketeering? Has anyone ever heard of any of that? Social media, somebody says the Colombo family's doing a poor job of making pizzas. We don't hear any of this. The outside world just sees somebody doing a job and doing it well. No backbiting. You know, stabbing. The, uh, if we have complaints or concerns, let's keep them to ourselves, to God, or to bring them up to the appropriate person within the body. Capiche? Thank you. <laughs> See if you guys are awake with that. You got to keep people awake with this, though. So I figured that would be a good one to drop there. Here, I'm going to give you another free one, by the way. A mob quote. If you skate on thin ice, skate quick. It's worth something there, I know. All right. Acts chapter 11, verses 19. We're going to read through 27 now. 
Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenician Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. That's interesting in and of itself, where we just came from. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on the coming to Antioch, which was the chief city in Syria, by the way, uh, spoke to the Hellenists, which were Jews that spoke Greek, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this, uh, more Twitter on the, you know, the, the Israeli social media, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Bar- Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. You know, this is really interesting to me. I have fallen in, I'm going to say this, I have fallen in love with Barnabas. I got a man crush on Barnabas. It's okay. You know, this guy is the one who introduced Paul to the disciples in Jerusalem. He's the one that when they get into a spitting match over John Mark going with Paul on the next little missionary excursion, he says, no, I'll take Mark. Don't worry about it. I got it. And here he is encouraging a church, loving on these guys. And he's going to get Paul and drag him back to this church too. Very little more we read about Barnabas in Scripture, but wow, if you want to set your sights on a standard of somebody as a gold seal, uh, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul um, to introduce Paul to the disciples. Excuse me, I got a note in there. He was the one who introduced the disciples in Jerusalem. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So it's interesting. Let me, let me give you just a principle here, a quick one. Encouragement works best with tangible support. Encouragement works best with tangible support. Encouragement works best with tangible support. If you say, well done, and somebody's growing, they're new in the Lord, and you want to fan the flames of their faith, back them. You know, and I'm not saying we can't just give good words of encouragement to some people, but what happens here? Barnabas could have left and said, the church is doing good. And he turns around and says, no, 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 let's get Paul. We're going to turn this place upside down. We're going to rock the house if the music's already on. And so that's what we see going on here. And it's, it's just one of those things that for us as the church, when we see somebody grabbing a hold of this, not only do we have a duty to encourage them, but we have a duty to back them. So who, is there somebody in your life that you could come alongside and exhort or encourage? Not only just say, well done, but to resource and equip. And maybe it's just in prayerfulness. Maybe it's in just passing on some great materials you've had in the past. Maybe it's bringing them into your sphere of influence. How, how do we do that? I'm going to go quick. I'm going to jump over. This. I had a thing about, you know, the Don. If, if you have a new person in the mob, they don't send them down the street to exhort, the, to, to corrupt the pizza parlor, try to steal money from them. What do they do? He says, yo, come with me. And so he grabs the guy. He brings them to the pizza parlor, and he shows them how to extort stuff, right? He doesn't say, you make a good mobster. No, he brings them alongside. Watch, I break his knuckles or whatever. He, he, he makes the, a bloody mess and says, next time you do it, right? That's how they do it in the mob. So is the church any different? No, the church, the encouragement works best with tangible support. Bring them alongside, support them, resource them, model and mentor them. That's the point here. All right, church charity, we're going to move quickly through this. This wasn't a long sermon this morning, and it's 
I'll just leave it there. Verse 27, And now in these days the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold the spirit that there would be a great famine over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability. Big words there. Everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Again, you can tell when men are trusted, they give them money. That's interesting. So how do we gauge our ability to give? Um, let me give you a piece of truth here. Giving should be according to ability, not a percentage. Giving should be according to ability and not percentage. There are a lot of people in church get upset. Oh, you should tithe 10%. You come to the church. Oh, we need your money. That's crazy. You know, truthfully, maybe one of the worst things that's ever happened to the church is the word 10% has been used within the church. Because what happens in my mind is if I'm giving God 10% this quota, which comes from the Old Testament, I think you've got biblical support for that. I'm cool with it. If you want to give 10%, that's cool. If you want to give 2%, that's cool. The consistent discipline of giving first fruits is a big deal, though. And if you want to give 25%, I'm just as flexible. Dale will not return the check if you give 25%, trust me. All right? But the problem is, is that once I think I've given my share, my 10%, no matter how much I have left over, I think I've met my quota. And that is how we rob God. And I'm not talking just about money. I'm talking about our time, our talent, the truth, which is his word, and our treasure, the four T's. So when you hear this quote of 10%, I kind of shudder. Because it says that if I just do this, I'm good with God. And it creates this reverse toxic theology. Because the minute I think I'm good with God based on any work, let alone giving, I'm in works-based theology, which spits at the cross. Because it says there's only one thing that can make me right with God, and that's a holy God who sent his son to die a sacrificial death for the sin of humanity, one of which I'm chief a member of the circumcision party. Thank you very much. You guys are going to own that, by the way. Some of you are sitting here squirming, and I know it, and it's okay. Because it qualifies you to approach the ground before the cross, which is all level, just like me. A broken, fallen, sinful, shifty, fickle, frail human being begging for mercy, and it's there. That's the gospel. So when I say I can do anything and be right with him, it's a mistake. It's bad theology. It's inconsistent. But do I respond to a holy God with pure gratitude out of my heart that I get to give? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't have to. I get to. And the discipline of a consistent tithe, the discipline of consistently acknowledging God with my wealth, lets my heart remain soft and stony about money. Scripture talks more about the problem with a man's heart with money than anything else, generally speaking. The root of all evil, what? Eh, you, you can't serve two masters, and then it says you'll love money or either God. Let's, let's go there, because that's where we are here this morning. Is our giving according to our ability? How about we use the poor widow from Matthew 12, excuse me, Mark 12, 41 through 44 as our gold standard? Jesus sat down opposite to the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money in the temple treasury. Many rich people threw large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. 
Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, the poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. You know, when I guess the question is this, it's not how much is enough. It's, it's, it's how much am I called to give? Where am I called to give? When am I called to give? And when God calls you to give, give. Keep your eyes open, though, because some of us will stick our hand in the head in the sand so we don't have to see the needs that exist around us, and they're everywhere as far as the eye can reach. You know, there, there are some things I had a conviction this past week to do something for somebody, and I went cold. I have no idea about the value of a dollar compared to the person I was able to bless this past week. I missed it. And what's even better is later on I went to look for some money and it wasn't there. I thought, I knew I had more money. Don't let the left know what the right is doing. That's the point. And you want to rejoice? You want to store up treasure in heaven? You want to set up an eternal annuity account with the kingdom of God? You want a compounding return that will blow the socks off of anything we could ever have here? You know, when you think about what we do in this life, it's all, these things are going to be pushed forward and are being pushed forward. So giving should be according to our ability, not a percentage. And I think, yeah, that's just, that's, that's scripture. So the mob, the mob, based upon your participation in our church at Doxa, what type of mobster would you make? All right, so I'm not here to beat up anyone. Um, but if God gives you orders, are you following the orders, right? Are you following them? If, if you are in this family, let's own the fact that we are messy. We're all messy. We're all messy people. And it gets messy. Are we living this faith thing out 24-7? Does everybody around us know who we really work for? Just a question. The food. Food is important now. I'm going to go back to that. Except for spaghetti, lasagna, pot roast, and fish, Randy. Where's Randy? Anything, anything else, Randy? I guess that leaves zucchini boats, fried chicken, and hamburgers. Cool. All right, got a thumbs up from Randy. So it, I'm going to presume if Randy leaves the gun, you'll take the cannoli? Okay, good. Good, all right. So food is important. Do we see that we're in this church business for life? Do we have a long-term plan in how we live? Our existence. Are we where we, what we have, where we work, our family? Is it structured for the long haul? Do we see our fellow Christian brothers and sisters literally as family? And I'm going to tell you this. You know, when your family comes into your house, you don't have to put away the laundry. You don't have to clean off the counter. When your family comes over, they know you're a slob, right? All right. They, they know you got foot fungus. You've had that since you were a little kid, right? You know, they, you know, you have bad breath in the morning. You know, oh, wait, my neighbors are coming over. I have to brush my teeth. No, no, they're family. These are members of DOXA. Just drop the front. Drop the front. If God is our father, that makes us all siblings. And if that's the case, the church business is family business. And in particular, what type of priority have we placed on being members of the family called DOXA? You know, the family thing is a really big deal. Friends are not as important as family. Do not confuse the loyalty of friendship with the bond of blood. In Christ, for us, this bond of blood was established when he shed it on a cross. The blood that now unites and joins us as members of the body. This blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness, that frees us from the slavery of sin. This is the blood that joins us. 
the blood that makes us children of a living God, that unites us, those who claim Christ as Lord and Savior. You know, the Mafia Manager is a book, it has another great, great quote. It says this, the best way to enter our business is to be born into it. And is that not the truth with us here in Doxa? Every one of us in Christ have been born into it. So for us, being born again into this venture, we're in it for life, and we are in it together as family. That's church business. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that um, you've made church business known to us. I pray that um, we would take this serious, that we would see each other as family, um, that we would behave as if each of us are family. We thank you so much for the blood that was shed. Lord, I pray that um, for those here really struggling who've had a long week, I, I pray that, that you just lift them, comfort them, give them some peace, give them a sense that, that they're among family and, and that this family loves well. Lord, help us again in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.